Hey there, my name is Ushin Lunny and this is Audio Matters, a weekly podcast on all things audio presented to you by Harman. This episode is all about the art and science of active listening. And my special guests are Dr. Sean Olive, a senior fellow at Harman and the former president of the Audio Engineering Society. Dr. Hauke Egerman, Associate Professor and Director of York Music Psychology Group and Senior Lecturer at the University of York. And Frank Filippetti, seven times Grammy-winning engineer and producer and founding member of the Music Engineering and Technology Alliance. Welcome all to the Audio Matters podcast. So today we're going to talk a bit about the art and science of listening, of deep listening, of good quality audio, and why it's important, particularly in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown that many of us are experiencing. I should explain that uh, more or less all of us have, quote unquote, lockdown hair. I, I have a lockdown beard myself. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're absolutely in the zone. Um, but Frank, talk to us a bit about what is the art of listening and indeed, why is it important? Well, the art of listening is uh, exactly that. It's an art. It's not a science. Um, the science of listening is very is relatively easy to uh, to determine. It's basically um, you're you know if you're a human being and you don't have any disabilities, you hear. Um, but the, we you know we'll get into this more later. But there is a, a distinct difference between hearing and listening. And when you get to the listening portion of it, you find that there's either passive listening or active listening. So what we're going to discuss today is the concept of active listening, which uh, provides a far more deep and uh, emotionally satisfying experience than passive listening. So uh, we'll get into that deeper, but to keep this introduction brief, there you are. Thank you very much. And Sean, talk to us a bit about why active listening is important, particularly at the moment, and uh, you know what active listening can can do to help people who are dealing with the lockdown. Sure. Uh, well, it's important right now because uh, uh, the lockdown is causing a lot of stress. There's a lot of social anxiety, and uh, it's it's well proven that music uh, is a is a great way to. Uh, control your emotions. Uh, it can reduce stress. It can reduce anxiety. Uh, it can uh, has medical benefits. It can reduce your, uh, uh, help control your blood pressure, uh, your heart rate. And uh, if, if you, uh, so it has all these medical, emotional, and cognitive benefits that uh, uh, are particularly important right now. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. And um Hauke, there is, uh, you know, Frank talked about the, the art of listening, uh, and we're also you know, going to be exploring a bit the engineering and the science behind uh, active listening. Um, talk to us a bit about the difference between spatial and spectral resolution, and, and why are these important topics? When we are um, reproducing music through any kind of media, we're usually reducing these, right? So you have a, if you've probably an orchestra, it has a 
a very wide uh, spectral and uh, spatial resolution uh, when you then record it on a small microphone and you listen to it uh, through your um, smartphone speakers all of a sudden these um, two resolutions become very small and quite narrow angle the, the sound becomes um, more narrow and there's less variability in it and these um, two things i think they are important for making music expressive and our ability to preserve perceived structures in music so the question of how well can i differentiate between different frequencies that will be associated with the um, amount of detail that we perceive in music but maybe also the expressiveness in the music um, because it um, might make music sound more expressive if there's more detail there or small nuances and the spectral resolution so if we have good speakers surround system that will help us to perceive different instruments better separately as opposed to everything together. And it creates it also sort of more, more depth and detail in there. It's fantastic. And for those listening on the podcast, I should just explain that our three very special guests have the most perfect backgrounds behind them. We will be sharing this on social media. So uh, Dr. Sean is sitting in a a beautiful kind of pristine white living room with a, a two towering high-tech speakers perfectly aligned. It looks like, uh, you know, Interior Design Magazine. It's just that the, the audio <laughs> is absolutely at the center. Um, Frank is in a recording studio uh, surrounded by wood paneling underneath a skylight and smoking a pipe and uh, surrounded <laughs> by vin- vintage technology and audio equipment. And uh, Hauke is uh, in his study, surrounded by books and uh, an audio equipment. So you could not have a more perfect tableau of backgrounds for our three speakers. An interesting thing has happened during the lockdown in that uh, cocooned music lovers are actually investing a lot of money in high quality audio equipment. The sales figures are up for really high end equipment. And also, as a lot of people stopped commuting, uh, for instance, in Italy, uh, once social distancing and lockdown measures were introduced, uh, demand for Spotify fell by 23%. But in contrast to this, Primephonic, a classical music streaming platform, saw demand surge in France by almost 50%. So it seems like as we are cocooned and locked down, uh, we are looking to music to give some rich experiences and we're, we're turning to high quality music as well. Um Frank, I wonder, could you talk, uh, sitting as you are in a beautiful recording studio there, talk to us a bit about, you know, how you compose these um, uh, tapestries, these 360 tapestries of audio, and then, you know, what it means to be listening to them on headphones or on speakers, and what's the difference in those two scenarios? The the main difference between headphones and speakers is that uh, the headphone experience is a more internal experience. Um, I have yet to hear a codec that demonstrably sounds like a speaker uh, or listening to a speaker. There are many, there are many out there that are trying, um, but at least for my pinna and whatever else is going on inside there, my RTFs and all that kind of thing, um, <laughs> I guess uh, I always hear the voice inside my head or the center is kind of inside my head and everything else, even the surround stuff is behind me. Um, I, I don't get that experience of something in front of me. Um, that's not to say the headphone experience can't be immersive. It can be immersive. In fact, it can be incredibly immersive, but it's a different perspective and it's certainly a different emotional experience. Listening to speakers is more like listening live. 
Um, listening with headphones is more like listening to the uh, internal dialogue between the musicians. It's a different it's a different experience, and they're both very satisfying, depending on what you like. Um, but I just uh, have always gravitated towards the 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 live speaker experience versus the headphone experience. Fascinating. Thank you. Um, and, and Sean, I have to come to you now, surrounded as you are by those two towering high-end speakers behind you. When you listen to music, do you use headphones to use your speakers? Do you use a, a mixture depending on the piece? Yeah. Uh, I mean, when, I, when I'm at home, I, I listen to speakers. When I'm traveling on a plane or whatever, I'll, I'll use headphones. But yeah, I'd have to agree with Frank uh, that uh, speakers... Uh, fill the room, you get reflections, which is critical to feeling immersed in sound. And it's the difference between uh, having the musicians in your room or you being transported to the hall where they're performing. And currently uh, that's possible with speakers, but with uh, headphones, as Frank said, you, you hear voices inside your head. Hopefully, Frank, you don't hear voices inside your head when you remove the headphones. That's been my problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different problem. Yeah. So, so there is technology. Uh, it's not widely available that will allow you to feel immersed with headphones. It, it requires binaural signal processing. Uh, it requires head tracking. But uh, the technology is here. It just it's just not widely distributed yet, and I'm hoping that will change soon. How would you recommend one goes about actively listening? Where should people start? Well, uh, from my perspective, and by the way, those voices in my head, um, <laughs> you know, I, I know I live in my own little world, but people like me there, so that's that's <laughs> that's, that's kind of why I stay in that in that mode. No, the um, uh, what I, the difference between, uh, to explain to the folks what, what the, these, these uh, expressions are. When you're, uh, let's start with hearing. When you're hearing uh, as a human being with two ears or one or a half or whatever, as long as you don't have um, a, a, a severe hearing disability, um, you will hear always. Uh, whatever happens out in the world, you'll either hear it through your uh, through the auditory uh, uh, function of your ears, or you'll even hear it internally through bone conduction. Uh, that is a process you can't really stop. And uh, um, in fact, you know, one of the ways of getting uh, data out of people is to play music loud, not allow them to sleep. And uh, but you can't turn that off. It's it's there. It will always be there. That though is for the most part passive listening. Um, or passive hearing. Now, active hearing, on the other hand, is being in a restaurant and uh, trying to listen to a conversation that's happening 20 feet away between a man and a woman who are about to break up and trying to get some uh, pointers on what the best way to do that is. So that is, in fact, taking the auditory signal that's coming in and now processing it doing a bunch of really complicated things inside the brain to eliminate all the other conversations that are around and using all of the cues that that sound is bringing to you and, and, and getting information from it. So that's active versus passive hearing. Now, active versus passive listening 
is a similar uh, process. The only difference is listening. You're already attuned to what's coming in to your ears. Um, when you're passive listening um, and your eyes are open, you're, you're the seventy percent of your uh, visual seventy uh, percent of your brain processing is uh, a function of the visual cortex. The visual cortex contains all of this data. Uh, you, all this data is coming in, but before it reaches consciousness, a bunch of switches determine, all right, the video stuff or the visual stuff is more important. We're going to let everything else go by, uh, or we're going to codec it some way. For example, we're going to MP3 it. So we're going to cut it down a little bit so it doesn't get in the way of this important stuff, which is what our eyes are seeing. Um, when, you're, when you're actively listening, you're, you're, you're changing that relationship somewhat. You're making the audio portion more important. Still, most of the data is still coming through the eyes, which is why when I'm really active listening, I close my eyes. In fact, when I'm working and mixing, I close my eyes. And when I'm in a concert hall, I close my eyes because after a while, I want to hear what's coming into my mind uh, through my auditory co cortex, not the visual. So, uh, but research shows that when your eyes are closed, there's much greater stimulation of the emotional centers of the brain, especially in the amygdala. Suddenly, uh, areas that uh, weren't firing before. These neurons are firing like crazy when the eyes are closed. So that's one part of active versus passive. And when I'm really into something musically, I go right to closing my eyes first. Then we can, uh, rather than taking up the rest of the hour, um, we can go on to the rest of this later. But that's basically what I do is active versus passive simply means now you're tuning into the, the musical qualities, the sonic qualities, the emotional qualities, even to the point of recognizing your own uh, body rhythms. For example, you will recognize suddenly something that really moves you. You're suddenly tapping your foot with no conscious need to do so. Or you're suddenly getting up because you're moved to dance, even though that thought didn't really enter your mind until once you were on the floor and realizing what a fool you were making of yourself. So basically, these things kind of happen because suddenly the music is doing something to you emotionally. And the more you tune into it, the more that experience overtakes you. Fabulous, fabulous. That's a, a great anecdote. Uh, I'm familiar with the dance floor of which you speak there, Frank. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that scenario is all too embarrassingly familiar. Um, Sean, now you have written over 50 research papers uh, on the perception and measurement of audio. Many of them have won very prestigious awards. Um, but I, I know that some of your work has been around the importance of the playback equipment, uh, you know, things like the perception of the bass end and, you know, how the quality of the playback equipment, particularly your speakers and headphones, how that affects your ability to actively listen and to have this beautiful emotional response. Um, so what are some of the things that you discovered in your research and that you wrote about on those papers about the importance of having good equipment? So yeah, over the last few decades, we've done a lot of studies with both trained and untrained listeners uh, from different parts of the country. We've looked at gender 
And uh, what we found is that a lot of people think they can't perceive good sound, so they're, they don't bother going to buy good speakers. They say, well, I'm not a trained listener. I'm not a musician. And it turns out that whether you're trained or untrained, people can recognize good sound from bad sound. And, uh, and, and there's overwhelming evidence that people like good sound and that's what they prefer. So that's, that's the good news. We don't have to make different flavors of headphones or loudspeakers because essentially good sound is universal. And, uh, what we found is that, uh, that bass is really important, the quality and the quantity of bass. So it, it, it accounts for 30 percent of the listener's preference, and uh, that means, uh, you know, listening to your laptop, listening to your computer, listening to a small Bluetooth speaker is not going to cut it. You you have to have a, a loudspeakers and headphones that are capable of reproducing the lowest notes in music, which is down to twenty hertz. And uh, it's also critical for speakers that you set them up properly because they tend to interact a lot with the acoustics of the room. And bass is, is by far the biggest factor, uh, how you set your speakers up, where you put them in the room. So if, if you don't optimize that, uh, it's going to affect the bass and 30% of your preference. Wow. And I, I believe some speakers have uh, built-in technology that can actually correct for the shape of the room. Talk to us a bit about that. What's, what's that technology called? It's getting more and more common now. It's called room correction, and it actually doesn't correct anything in the room, but it, it, it analyzes the acoustics of the room, uh, particularly at low frequencies, and then it'll add equalization to try to compensate for peaks or dips uh, in, the, in the room, in, in the room modes. Every room has a natural set of resonances uh, that will emphasize certain notes, and what it does is... Uh, is try to remove those those artifacts. Uh, what Dr. Olive said is absolutely true, but my own empirical experiments uh, on this issue of good versus bad sound have shown uh, anecdotally to me that eventually untrained and trained or trained listeners all recognize good sound, but not initially. I have found that People that have grown up with, let's say, MP3 audio versus high-res audio actually prefer the MP3 versus the high-res audio initially. As they become more involved as listeners and start to hear things like harmonics and things like that, they move away from that. But it's kind of like, um, I compare it to like a paint by numbers. Um, there's a clarity to MP3 because you're not distracted by um, the fuzzy elements, okay? It's just the, the direct colors are there in front of you, very easy to pick out, very easy to deal with. As you get into the higher resolutions, you're now getting these upper order harmonics and they start to fuzzy the outlines a little bit in terms of the, the, the untrained listener listening. So many times they will prefer this kind of uh, uh, simpler audio versus the more complex. But the more they start to hear what a violin sounds like in, in the room and then in a speaker with high-res audio versus an MP3 or a piano or what have you, they then really understand it. But that process isn't always immediate. 
In other words, I thought from day one that I would play them James Taylor MP3, and then I'd play them the high-res file, and they'd say, oh, my God, of course. And I was shocked to learn that that wasn't the case. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you made a a great comment the last time we talked that uh, for, for the first time in the history of recorded music, people can have, you know, exactly at their home what, what you have in your control room. Exactly. Yep. Yep. In fact, yeah. they have. If I send them a ninety six k mix, twenty uh, four bit, that's what I'm listening to, and they can hear it exactly as I hear it. Never happened before in history. And yet many people still, uh, and as, as Dr. Olive and I were talking about the headphone versus a speaker experience, they're not only listening to the MP3s, but most of them are getting their uh, musical experience on headphones, which even the best of which, it's not the same experience. It's still a great one. And great headphones, by the way, are so superior to lousy ones that uh, that those are worth the investment. I, I, I sometimes wonder why people who will spend $2,000 on a speaker system, you know, go like this, you know, uh, put up the cross when it's like, oh, those are $300, those headphones? Are you kidding me? Well, <laughs> yeah, those are speakers for your head. <laughs> you know, so... So maybe, you know, maybe invest in a, in a really nice, you know, even if it's $200, but my God, you really have to do with those $11 buds, you know? So I think that's, that's uh, something they can immediately do and get a decent pair of, of, of phones. Those, those are wise words. Thank you. Um, uh, Hauke, so you have, um, uh, in the past, you've recommended specific exercises uh, the people can, you know, they can sit down and listen to a piece of music. And, uh, you know, you have recommendations about exercises that can help them engage with this active listening part of their brain. Share with us a few of those tips. Yeah, I think um, one thing to just uh, um, uh, emphasize is that actually we just, uh, in the first place, we just have to take time for music listening, like just to really accept that that's an actually an an active activity that we can engage in in our everyday lives. And I, I really hope that during lockdown, this is the time where people start doing that because they might have more time for that. Um, uh, um, so not to push music into something that's in the background while in the car and driving to work, but really um, sit down at home, say, okay, tonight is the night I'm going to listen to that album and I'm taking I'm taking some time and I'm, I'm really trying to focus here and I'm appreciating music for what it is, which is it's actually a piece of art, right? Um, and um, then, yeah, you can, you can work out different strategies. You can um, try to focus on different uh, um, elements of the production. You can listen for the sound, uh, I, the, the production itself, the mixing. You can can try to listen for musical structures. Um, try to identify what is what are what is repeated in the song, for example. What what is different? Um, what's the chorus? Um, uh, what instruments are there? Um, how do they sound like? Um, are they um, changing? Are they different? Um, uh, you can also sit down, take some notes, try to visualize the structure of the song. 
um, uh, and do that over and over. And I think that's a really a way to engage with music and that will also um, deepen your connection to it and uh, will leave some impact on you on the long term. Yeah, t- totally. And um, I, staying with you, uh, Hauke, there, there was a great study, um, I think, that you put together in 2017, which was about the connection between active listening and the ability to cope with emotional challenges. So so what would your recommendation to people be now who are under lockdown and this COVID-19 pandemic is affecting the world? How can music help them? Yeah, so I think... Um I mean, Sean mentioned already quite a lot of things about sort of the the, the emotional impact that music has, has on us, and we can sort of use that to our advantage, um, and we should really actively engage with that. Um, people often ask me, is there like a special song that I need to listen to that's like magic? And I usually tell them, no, it's not the case. It's about your own music, so music that's meaningful to you personally. Um um, and that will help you to to get through this time. It will uh, um, distract you in a way, it, which is in the first place maybe a good thing if you're in crisis mode, but it will, might also have the ability to soothe you. Um, it, um, uh, it can create pleasurable experiences, and then we should also not forget that music is, an, on its very own, it's a very social thing right so listening to music is social so in a time of social distancing we might actually um be able to feel that we're closer to other people by listening to their music so to to listen to your favorite artists you you might be able to um build up a a social connection to them and um make you feel less lonely just to pick up on that point the Music is a uniquely human activity, um, and it's. Uh, but not only is it uniquely human, but it also, for whatever reason, um, is present in just about every culture on the planet. Um, which means it's it's primal. Uh, I think it's in our DNA. Uh, when you go on YouTube and you see uh, children of six months old dancing to the beat. Uh, how do you do that? That that's ridiculous. When you think about the sophistication of that activity, um, it involves all kind of processing, <clears throat> acknowledging where the last beat was, and then predicting where the next beat is. But somehow, all of that information is coded in our system. So we are we are uh, DNA prepped for music, and. The thing that we've started to do in the last 20 or 30 years is we've started to minimize the importance of music simply by putting it in the background all the time. When it's in the background, it just becomes noise in a sense. It's pleasant noise, but it's noise nonetheless. Whereas when you actively listen, uh, when you sit down and listen to a, an album from beginning to end. Um, many people prefer a turntable to uh, listening through a streaming device or something else, and they say it sounds better. Well, I don't agree with that, but I do agree with the fact that the ritual of, of using the turntable forces you to actively listen. You don't just 
put it on and then forget about it for two and a half hours and let it play whatever it wants. You have to every 15 minutes, get up, turn it over. If you're picky, like I am, you clean the record and then you, you know, you put the needle on, you listen for another 15 minutes, then you go and you do the same thing again. You're taken on an emotional journey because you're paying attention to it. It's not something that just is to take your mind off things uh, or keep you from wandering. It really centers yourself emotionally. So I think that the, the idea of doing these activities to ground yourself in, in this uniquely human endeavor, um, which uh, across the centuries has been modified and manipulated by artists to such an extent that they have some kind of deeper connection with all of us, whether it's Beethoven, you know, the second movement of Beethoven's Ninth, or whether it's, uh, you know, Tears for Fears, uh, everybody wants to rule the world. But there's something when these things go on that really excites you and moves you emotionally, if you're paying attention. That's the idea. That's the thing about active listening, paying attention. Speaking of this profound emotional experience that we can have from actively listening to music, Dr. Olive, talk to us a bit about some happy songs that can lift the mood. Uh, you've written about this recently and you've recommended some wonderful songs to help people during the lockdown. Uh, talk to us a bit about the, the concept of happy listening. So recently I became aware of some research being done by a, a guy named David Greenberg, who's a psychologist and uh, Along with a bunch of other people, he's identified basically music contains three components or dimensions. And one of them is uh, valence or valence, which is how happy or sad. Another one is arousal, which is how excited does it get you uh, versus being calm. And then there's an, a third dimension uh, called depth, which is sort of the emotional range or intensity of the music. And there's an intellectual aspect. So... So uh, if you're looking for happy music, uh, there's basically some features of music, which is, is fairly consistent across all the genres. And, you know, the tempo, uh, uh, a faster tempo music tends to make you happier. It also makes you more aroused. So the tempo is important, uh, as well as the dynamic range. Uh, so some of the songs I, I chose were ones that have been recommended based on this research. One of them is Happy by uh, Farrell. Yeah, yeah. yeah Farrell. For me, uh, uh, September by Earth, Wind, Wind and Fire, it's very upbeat, very tempo. It's very hard not to start tapping your toes and dancing right. when you hear it. And if you're more into classical music, the, the Four Seasons, Vivaldi, uh, based on this research, uh, the first uh, movement of spring was one of them. Uh, personally, when I hear the fall season with the uh, the dance, the hunting, they're they're out hunting on their horses, and it's very up tempo. There's a number of songs that are, uh, if you listen to them, uh, the science says it's going to make you happy. Fabulous, uh, uh, amen to science. Uh, I want to come to your next DJ gig, uh, Sean. I think it's <laughs> going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Okay, so we just heard from Sean there about how music can lift your mood. You know, science has proven that certain songs can and do make you happy. Uh, but music, of course, can be a great motivator when it comes to sports and exercise and uh, just keeping in shape. So, Hauke, talk to us a bit about the overlap between exercising and music and how can it help? 
Yeah, well, music stimulates um, us. Um, it stimulates our body, um, and then uh, we could obviously use that uh, stimulation in order to get us into the mood to actually move um, and do some exercise. Music helps us also to structure our movements in time. So this is why people often listen to uh, music when they go jogging, when they go running. So you have uh, a steady beat that um, helps you to synchronize your movements and make them more continuous. Um, and we also know that um, if you pair that with the emotional effect of music, then it makes you more likely to endure maybe things that are not so pleasant, uh, more exhausting. Um, and there's been actually an interesting study of a colleague of mine um, who built a fitness device that allows you to control music parameters as opposed to just listening passively to music. So when you actually, actually while you're working out on a fitness device, like working when you're working out and you're controlling, for example, the, the loudness of a track in a recording, so it feels like you're actually changing the music and contributing to, to it yourself. It's less physically exhausting and you work out more and harder and more effectively. Um, so it's actually quite quite fascinating um, how, how music can help us there in, these, yeah, in this context. Absolutely. I think the Muzak Corporation was invented using the science of how music can aid productivity, but it can also be uh, connected with kind of health and wellness. So Frank, you mentioned 120 BPM yeah. being very important for stimulating uh, you know, fitness and responsiveness for your workout. But what are some of the other things that you can do with music that maybe create a more calm state of mind or aid wellness in general? Well, it's not just uh, creating a calmer state of mind or, or wellness. It's, yes, music can do that. It can also seriously aggravate you and it can, you know, uh, you know, death metal and things like that. They're specifically set up to create, you know, um, a lot of anxiety and so forth. So music uh, can pretty much run the gamut of hu human emotions if the artist is capable of producing that. And all they need is a fundamental knowledge of um, how music works. Uh, now, obviously, it's uh, some of it's academic, but most of it's instinctual. These are things you learn just by seeing. Um, but one of the most fascinating, uh, well, to start with the, the, the exercise thing, 120 BPM was chosen as the, um, for a while, uh, as the medium um, for dance music, uh, especially disco music. For the first several years, uh, you couldn't get it played in the clubs if it wasn't 120. Um, and the concept was, of course, the DJ would uh, play one thing and then he'd be able to slide another track in and the tempos would not change. They would, you know, it would be a consistent kind of playlist. Um, but it just generally is a, uh, a BPM that really does generate that tapping of the foot and so forth. So that's one aspect. But the most fascinating aspect uh, in my research has been the uh, the 432 versus 440 controversy. Um, and uh, there are a lot of claims made by the New Agers who are investigating this, uh, which I don't agree with. But I do agree that there's something there. Originally, music uh, was tuned to, uh, to around from around. This is back in the uh, Renaissance and all that. Music was the, the A for the orchestra was around 420 to 436. 
Uh, each orchestra had its own tuning and did it its own way. You know, they didn't really have accurate tuning forks or accurate tuners. Um, Gibson hadn't come up with the guitar tuner yet. So um, they all had to kind of figure out what their tuning basis was. And so it was a very inaccurate science, but they used it to tune the orchestra. Different orchestras had different tunings. Um, the 432 is sometimes called Verdi's A because it's it's kind of theorized that he uh, used a tuning somewhere in that area. I listen to music both scientifically and analytically, but I also listen to it emotionally. And emotionally, if something makes sense to me, then I feel there's something there. So I've been analyzing this, and I find that music at 432 hertz is more pleasant. I can't explain it any other way. It also seems to be more calming. And so I started thinking about this, and I'm saying to myself, well, wait a minute. If music now is ubiquitous and it's everywhere and you can't walk away from it, and I know I've gone into um, um, stores and things now where the music is so bad, I actually don't stay there longer as I'm supposed to. I actually run out screaming. Um, I'm realizing that you can't get away from music, and, and at some point um, it's doing something to us, being everywhere all the time. So. If 432, let's just say, is a half a percent more calming than 440, maybe that half a percent is enough to, you know, make people a little more anxious or what have you. It's quite uh, uh, interesting to me um, when I when I play one and then play the other, how differently it, it, it affects me emotionally. And two, when I go between them, same thing. So um, it's an interesting concept, and I think definitely deserves scientific study because, and and I don't even know if 432 is the right frequency. Maybe it's 431 and a half, or maybe, but there, um, it's obvious that there is something going on with frequencies. Um, we know that there are frequencies that do bother us. We know that there are frequencies that are, you know, there's the whole solfeggio frequency, uh, which had you know was developed back uh, long before the uh, the 14th and 15th centuries, which there were the six solfeggio tones, which supposedly had mystical properties, um, and uh, one of them, 528 hertz, is uh, is theoretically, uh, uh, which is actually the middle C. If you use 432, is actually uh, thought to have. Uh, uh, healing properties to certain forms of RNA and so forth. So anyway, these are all speculations, but I think it needs study. And I think it's, a, it's an interesting, another interesting slant on how music affects us emotionally. And I would love uh, to do more work on it. Fabulous. So Frank, when they introduce a Grammy category for the best recording in 432, Okay, I really want to see your name on all of the uh, all of the nominated recordings. <laughs> Fantastic! Yeah. You spoke about the you know the healing properties of music of certain frequencies. Even we're really kind of having a deep dive into you know what's possible with music in terms of how people react. Uh, one thing that I'm seeing a lot of is people reappraising the value of culture because 
they can't leave the house. They're stuck there with Netflix and their record collections and Tidal and Cubos and Spotify. Mm. Um, do you think the lockdown is inspiring people uh, to reappraise the value of culture and the value of music? I think it has. I mean, I, I think there's examples where, uh, for example, in Italy, when they were locked down, they were going out on their balconies and uh, singing to each other. So uh, that that was very uh, touching when I saw that. And, uh, you know, uh, up in the Bay Area, where I go frequently to visit my girlfriend in uh in Marin County, every evening at 8 p.m., you start hearing howling throughout the valley, and people are basically pretending they're coyotes and and uh, <laughs> howling in support of the first responders, all the medical workers on the front lines. So, uh, so I think music has become identified as uh, as a social thing that can bring you together, even though you're physically apart. You can. Uh, you can participate, whether it's on YouTube. Uh, I know Zoom, for example, we often get together at, at dinner. We put our laptops on the uh, table and we share a meal together through technology. So I think I think music, certainly for me, I've been uh, watching, you know, classical concerts and, uh, and spending money on audio equipment. <laughs> uh because I'm spending more time and I, I see the, the value of music. And I, that's my observation. Yeah, that, fantastic. Uh, I, I totally agree. And th there's a really interesting thing happening on Twitter, for instance. Uh, if you follow the hashtag Tim's Twitter listening party, it's where a gentleman called Tim Burgess, who is the lead singer of a band called The Charlatans, he just invites everybody on Twitter to listen to an album with him and the artists who made it. So mm. they've had the Chemical Brothers, they've had the Pogues. They have some really interesting classic albums and people share their thoughts on Twitter. It's like this big communal listening experience. Uh, it's it's asynchronous. People are listening to it whenever they listen to it. But the, the conversation is sort of a unifying feature. So I'm kind of fascinated by this idea that the lockdown is helping us to see new possibilities about the future of listening to music. And Hauke, how do you think that the lockdown might affect how we approach live concerts. Are we going to be more open to events like we saw in Fortnite? Uh, we had a, a, a concert that was held for, I think, 12.3 million people. Travis Scott gave a concert in the, the virtual game of Fortnite. Um, do you think the lockdown is changing our openness to new technology, providing listening and collective listening experiences? I, I definitely would say so. I've got some colleagues who put on a, a personal concert from their living room for us um, every like Friday night, um, and that wouldn't have happened before. And I, I could imagine that things like that will actually continue into the future. And also, I think depending on how long the lockdown will be eventually, I mean, we all don't really know um, what kind of future we're facing. Um, I think there is no other way that um, the music industry might have to be sort of develop new formats and uh, methods of uh, reaching audiences beyond um, concert venues and, and physical concerts. So I find that quite exciting to see what, what happens there. I think that technology would be there to a certain degree. So if you think about like VR sets and headsets and things like that, um, but Obviously, it's a bit difficult to, to 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 really predict the future here, but I think it's a 
just interesting thought experiment. It will have impact on um, how we use media in other areas. So it will also change how we listen to music and appreciate concerts, I'm for sure. Well, just a quick comment on, on the cultural aspect. Um, you know, music has always, uh, throughout history, led uh, a lot of the cultural changes, um, especially in the 20th, 19th and 20th centuries with, with classical music. Um, you know, uh, uh, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring opened up a whole new uh, area for people and even created riots at the time of its performance. Some of that was due to Nijinsky, who was dancing it. But nonetheless, the music itself was so bold and daring that, that uh, many people found it um, frightening. And, um, um, and it went on to change music. Uh, there was then the 12 stone music, 12 tone music and all that. But I think the most interesting aspect of music and culture was I grew up in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, and as a teenager in the 60s, um, uh, I had, uh, you know, we were listening to music um, mostly uh, or oftentimes created by uh, black musicians. Um, and I did a, I recorded uh, a show uh, several years ago uh, called Motown the Musical, in which they went through the history of Motown. And I found, uh, and I met Barry Gordy, and, uh, and I, you know, was fascinated by the story. And I realized that growing up as a teenager in the 60s, um, I don't think the fact that the civil rights movement really came to a head in the 60s was necessarily an accident. I think that music brought white Americans into the world of black art. And we started to really recognize that many of the things that we were really interested in or, or gravitated to was black music. And then we would go to concerts and we would see black artists up there. And then you'd find out that those artists weren't allowed to stay in the hotel uh, next to the venue, but they had to go somewhere else. Or sometimes they couldn't, not in the North so much, but in the South, you found out they couldn't even use the bathrooms there or whatever. And suddenly you have these people, we're sitting there enjoying this music. And then uh, and many people in the audience at that point were also uh, African-American. And suddenly we're all having a good time together and realizing, what the hell is this? Why are they not with us? Why can't they go home the same way or, or get on the same bus or do? And I think music is what did that. that we realized that that music was so important. And we gravitated to it and we realized that we are kind of people, you know. And so I think in that sense, music has this incredible power to change people. What I find very interesting about your question was that now it's looking like the culture or what's happening in the culture is changing music to the extent that we're getting back to where we got to a point where we devalued it. We're starting to appreciate it again and starting to realize through podcasts, through live concerts on air, how much we look forward to those moments and how important that is to us psychologically and as a, as a, as a human being and as part of this species. 
and how we all enjoy this particular aspect that's so important to us. So from that, from that standpoint, I think it's, it's really, uh, it, it, I think it is changing how we're viewing music again, because it's taking on an importance that we started to devalue. And I think that's very important. Fantastic. So we, we have uh, a kind of general expectation that people want to hear better quality formatted and recorded music on better equipment. They're more open to these new shared listing experiences by using technology. These are really interesting times. So I'd like to ask each of you to talk to us a bit about how you listen to music. Uh, you know, what's in your crib? What streaming formats do you use? What physical formats or digital formats do you use? Um, starting with your good self, Frank, surrounded by the wonderful recording studio as you are right there. <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm a, uh, I always say I'm gear agnostic. Uh, and the reason I say that is because when I was growing up and I was listening to Marvin Gaye on the radio, on the AM radio in the car, it was amazing to me. And AM radio, as you know, does not have great sound, which is why I've never uh, criticized uh, the today's kids for listening to MP3s because we listened to most of our music in the car on a radio and that sounded terrible. But if the music was recorded in an emotional way in a, and it gripped that performance, that sounded great to me, even though, you know, my mind almost made up for the frequencies I wasn't hearing. It was just enhancing it, but it still moved me. Now, does it move me more on an incredible system? You bet it does. That's why I've got an incredible system. But I do believe that a great artist and a great engineer and a great mixer can mix and 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 record the music in a way that sounds emotional, regardless of the equipment that you listen to it on. Um, I won my first two Grammys recording the album, uh, James Taylor's Hourglass album, in a uh, rented cottage on Martha's Vineyard through a at that point, a brand new O2R digital console. It was uh, um, a $5,000 console, um, and everything went through that, and yet I won an engineering Grammy. And 20 years prior to that, I'd been working in the best studios in the world on the best equipment, which led me to believe that if you have a vision and you can get it on there, that's all that matters. Now, as I said, great gear enhances that. Absolutely. I would much prefer to listen to my music on a system like I have here or like uh, Sean has in his home than when my wife says, oh, look at this video that this band just did. And I, I look there after five, you know, five or 10 seconds on the, on the iPhone and I say, I can't, I can't. Come on, let's go in and listen at least on the computer where we have speakers connected to it. So, you know, yes, it changes the experience. It enhances in the experience. It's not necessary for the experience, but there is no question that when I hear a superb recording done through superb gear on a superb system, it moves me in a way that my uh, my wife does when she's all made up and looks really great and she has the nice short skirt on and stuff. 
I love her just the same in the bathrobe, but I got to tell you that, you know, when she's dressed up, there's no question it adds a little bit of spark to it. So that's my take. <laughs> that's a beautiful take, Frank. Thank you. Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, um, uh, I, I'm not going to ask you exactly the same questions, Sean. It's, it's, it's a difficult to follow up, but uh, Sean, what would you recommend in terms of like high quality listening formats? What do you use at your home on those great speakers? Yeah, so there, it's not hard to find good streaming now in terms of sound quality. Uh, there's uh, services like Tidal, uh, Amazon, HD Music, uh, Cobas. And they all provide uh, lossless streaming uh, music, which is CD quality or higher. Uh, CD is, is perfectly adequate, but they offer uh, something called high resolution, which is, uh, is uh, beyond the 16-bit uh, 44.1 sampling of uh, CD. So it has more dynamic range, more bandwidth. Uh, Tidal has something called uh, master quality, which guarantees that you're listening to this identical uh, version that was on the master uh, tape. So, uh, and these, these services, uh, the quality is, is not much more money. So it's, it's well worth it. And what you want to avoid is, is uh, lossy quality that's lower than 256 kilobits per second. So, uh, so that's the streaming service. Then it's just a matter of choosing good speakers, good headphones, and making sure they're set up properly. And speaking of good speakers, forgive the pun, <laughs> Sean, tell us a bit about those gorgeous speakers sitting right behind you that uh, we can see on this video call. They're, they're phenomenal. What are they? So these are made by Harman. Uh, they're Revel. Uh, the brand is Revel, and they're the Salon 2s. And uh, they're hooked up to uh, Mark Levinson Electronics, so I have separate amplifiers uh, number 536 uh, for each each speaker. So each speaker has its own separate amp, and they'll put out uh, 800 watts into four ohms. And then I have a Mark Levinson music player, which uh, all the streaming basically goes into that. And uh, uh, it, it's a it's a superb sound system. It's it's based on all the research that we've done over the years, and. Uh, there, it's a prettier version of what Frank has in his studio, which is the the JBL M2s. So but the, these are uh, you know a little more attractive, but essentially they're uh, in terms of sound quality very similar. I don't know that they're more attractive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, burn! <laughs> and. Just, just you know, if if you're quoting numbers, I have 1.2 kilowatts per speaker on mine. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, that's that's throwing down the gauntlet right there. Well, you know, whenever either of you are DJing next, please send us all invites. So there you have it from some of the leading experts in the world about how to enjoy active listening, particularly in a lockdown. Set the right time aside, get in the right headspace, find some good equipment and listen to some great music. As On Vogue said, free your mind and your ass will follow. Thank you so much for joining us, Sean, Hauke and Frank. 
Listeners, if you have any questions or comments for the Audio Matters team, just find us on social media and get involved. And please don't forget to subscribe using Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, or whatever your favourite podcast app is. Tune in next week when Audio Matters will be exploring how to rev up your in-car audio experience and move from RPM, revolutions per mile, to EPM, experiences per mile. In the meantime, have a great week.